I think the place that radio takes you, it's the place inside another person. It's, it's as though a door clicks and then creaks open, and in you go. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Radio is a collaboration between a radio producer and a listener. I say we don't like such a thing here. Okay, but I ask... Why do you come inside without informing... Is that a good metaphor? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It requires a listener in order to see the pictures. And I took a breath and I said, Alan, is Emily dead? And he said, no, but you need to get here as soon as possible. Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about us. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio. All year long, we curate innovative audio documentaries from around the world and share them in a variety of ways. On the radio, on the internet, at live listening events, you get the picture. And one of the highlights of our year is dressing up, drinking a little bubbly, and basking in the glow of the year's best audio documentaries at our annual awards ceremony in Chicago. Film has the Academy Awards. Radio has Third Coast. Welcome to the awards ceremony for the 2011 Third Coast uh, Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition. That was Peter Sagal of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, MC of our awards soiree. This year, of the 300 entries that poured in from 12 different countries, eight earned the top honors. Here on Best of the Best, you'll hear the winning stories and a few thoughts from the producers who made them. You know, usually you do a story and then there's just another broken story staring at you and you have to fix it. And you forget about the last one, move on to the next one. I couldn't shake this one. Let's start with our Best New Artist Award, a prize that's given to a producer who's been in the audio field for less than two years. For Andy Mills, this year's winner, being new to the biz means that by day he whips up foamy lattes. By night, he proudly tracks his narration in the closet, mixes it on his pirated, outdated Pro Tools software, and then finds a coffee shop that he doesn't work in with free Wi-Fi to share it with fellow indies for feedback. For his prize-winning story, Khan, Andy teamed up with Hudson Branch, the band that composed the soundtrack very deliberately, with their subject always in mind. Khan, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, you start. My name is Khan Kayo. This is my friend Khan. How old are you? I'm 26. And he talks slowly. Years old. In fact, everything that Khan does... He does slowly. His mind is totally fine. It's just as fast and sharp as yours or mine, but his body and his speech, they're another story. And that's because back when Khan was just eight years old, he was hit by a car. The accident. The accident severed his spinal column. My spinal column. And that's why he talks the way he does. That's why I talk like I do. Khan spent five months in a coma, and when he woke up, his body was forever slowed. Now he eats slowly, walks slowly, talks slowly. But the thing about Khan's voice in particular that I think is just so strange 
is that he doesn't hear himself the way that we hear him. In fact, in Khan's head, every time that he's speaking to him, he sounds just like everyone else. So when I say something like, I'm 26 years old, it only takes me about two seconds. I'm but when Khan says the exact same thing, years old. it takes him about seven seconds. Yet somehow, according to Khan, these two sound just alike in his head. Because of this, for years after Khan's accident, he had no idea what his own voice sounded like. How do you go for years without knowing what your voice sounds like? Well, Khan says that things kept on just like this until he was in junior high. He was 12 years old, and he had his first big crush on this girl in his class named Julie. And he wanted to do something big, something romantic to win her affection. So what did he do? He made her a mixtape. A uh, mixtape. A love song mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> and as if that wasn't romantic enough, he decided that the last song on the tape would be a recording of Khan singing a song with his own voice for his crush Julie. So Khan got a tape recorder, recorded the song, and when he played the tape back for himself, he was horrified. Horrified. He kept thinking, is that me? Is that really what I sound like? And it was right there in that moment when Khan heard his voice on a recording for the very first time that he realized something was wrong. I just always thought of myself as a good singer till then because I heard myself as a good singer. The whole thing's kind of like if you had purple skin, but the only way that you could see your skin as purple, like everyone else saw it, was to look at a photograph. Is that a good metaphor? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. So, there's 12-year-old Khan sitting next to a tape player, realizing that this, the voice he's hearing right now for the very first time, this is how everyone else hears him all the time. And he said to himself, I'm never gonna talk again. He began to cry, but then he felt angry. How had no one told him about this? But then he thought, well, who could have told me? Growing up, Khan was the hearing child of two deaf parents. His mom and his dad, they had never heard his voice in the first place. So how could they tell him? And Khan thinks that everyone else just assumed that he knew what his own voice sounded like, which is probably true. I've known Khan for over a decade, and up until a few weeks ago, I had no idea that he couldn't hear what we hear when he's speaking. And neither did any of his friends. Hello. Like Haley. Hey, Haley. Hey. And his friend Dave. Hey, Dave, what's up? Oh, not much. What's up, Andy? When I told them what I'd learned about Khan's voice, they almost couldn't believe it. You're kidding. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. <laughs> That's so crazy. I was really surprised by that. I can't imagine hearing it for the first time, though, like he did. It has to have been crushing. Aww. That's so sad. I mean, to realize that you sound completely different from everybody else, and speaking is such a big part of social interaction, you know? A few weeks back, Khan and I went on a walk. Watching Khan walk, it reveals just how hard it must be to live life in slow motion. 
His legs move so slowly that they have to fight gravity with every step. He limps and he falls a lot. If you were to drive by and see him walking down the sidewalk, you might think he was a drunk returning from some all-night binge. After his accident, Khan spent several years in a wheelchair, but then he decided a while back that he wanted to walk, and he's worked really hard to get out of that chair. And so these days, Khan walks. Everywhere. Everywhere. Now, Khan knows that he can get places faster and easier if he just takes his electronic wheelchair. But to Khan, you see, that just doesn't matter. He likes to walk. And this is the same attitude that he has about pretty much everything in his life. He qualifies for assisted living, and he could have somebody come to his place and cook and clean for him, which of course would be easier, but he likes to cook and clean. And this is especially true when it comes to Khan's voice. He agrees that his life is hard, but the way he sees it, whose isn't? He says, sure, he's disabled. His body and his voice, they just don't work the way they used to. They don't work the way most people's do. And he doesn't know if they ever will. What he does know is that he likes singing. <coughs> he's even grown to like the unique way his voice sounds in recordings. And he thinks, maybe someday, he'll find a girl who does too. This is Grey Room by Damien Rice. And in the meantime, he'll just keep singing. Well, I've been here before. Because you see, according to Khan, that's just what you do. Sand on the Especially when you're lonely, especially when life feels too hard, you sing. Gray, gray room. Gray, gray room. Khan was produced by Andy Mills, this year's Best New Artist, with musical collaborators Hudson Branch. Andy produced this story not for a national radio show, but to share online. Lucky for us, he submitted it to the competition. We're hoping this award helps Andy secure a lifelong career in public radio. So does he. Here's Andy accepting his award at this year's ceremony. I work at coffee shops, and if there's anyone here who works in public radio... I know a guy who won an award, and he would be willing to work for you for a reasonable income and perhaps benefits. I'm Gwen Maxi, and you're listening to Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Coming up, you'll hear the Third Coast staff's favorite story of the competition, chosen for this year's Director's Choice Award. Stay with us. Best of the Best is produced by the Third Coast Festival and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange.
Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each year, the Third Coast staff singles out our favorite entry for the Director's Choice Award. This year's winner is remarkable in all ways. The scope of the story is vast, the courage it took to report striking, and the artistry in the production stunning. In the middle of Accra, Ghana, there's a neighborhood called Sodom and Gomorrah. There, destitute children scavenge through a toxic scrap heap of discarded computers illegally exported from the West. The children sell bits of computer scrap for a pittance while dreaming of escaping to Europe, which means, among other hurdles, crossing the Sahara undetected. German producer Jens Jarisch traveled to Accra to investigate and try and understand this complicated situation. His story was adapted from German into English by Sharon Davis of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and narrated by Rebecca Massey. There is a place. <laughs> you find in your dreams. <laughs> when your life seems to have no way out. That is is so sweet. <laughs> and there is another place. You really end up in. Maybe you don't have any that money. So you have to die. When there is no place left for you to live. If friends didn't contribute for you, you would die. That's what is going on. But over here is burning. Old Testament. Here is burning. One is Europe. Street Paradise Ventures! The other is called here Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. After a night on the ship. At the end of a long, dark night, at five o'clock in the morning, on a scheduled passenger voyage across the sea that divides Morocco from Spain and Africa from Europe. As morning breaks, we draw near to a coast of flickering lights. And I think, my Europe. A reporter stands ahead on the bow, looking out into the night. Apart from a long, thin strip of European lights on the horizon, the ship is still gliding through total darkness. Where, perhaps not so far away, rubber rafts are drifting with people on board. No one would see them. Until today, I had never thought about what it would be like if I had never been to Europe before. Wherever I have lived, I have always started out from Europe. And I would risk my life. The people who die on the sea in the course of this night will remain nameless. Only the handful who reach the shore in Europe will be given a name when they arrive. They're called economic refugees. But that's not the whole story. We have to story. take a look what are the pull factors, analyze why certain routes are chosen, routes. why certain modi operandi are, are chosen. Business. Um, this is, the, let's say, the core business of our analysts. Sodom and Gomorrah, where the lagoon used to be used 
to be because now there's no lagoon. It's now rubbish and damp and you know. But when we were growing up, it was a lagoon. Papa, why? I need money. I will get money. In the middle of Accra, the capital of Ghana, 20 or 30 years ago, there was a wonderful lagoon. And it was blue. But all that is left today is a black hole. The swamp around the lagoon dried out, and people came to settle on the mud left by the swampy land of old. It has now disappeared completely, and has become this thing, you know. Thus a new secret district came into being in Accra. Right at the heart of the centre, between the old harbour and the new station. But nobody in town wanted to acknowledge what was happening there. Even today, the area is officially uninhabited. There is no entry in any register and no mark on any map. And then somebody called it Sodom and Gomorrah. My, ma- my mother name is Samata. Samata. And my father's name is Mohammed. And my sister's name is Hawa. And your name? And my name is Uzema. Sodom and Gomorrah is made up of thousands of little wooden sheds. A few of them have a second story sticking out from the sea of planks, cardboard boxes and rocks. Giant rubbish dumps stretch out around these dwellings. When it is dry, waste piles are burning everywhere. And when it rains, Sodom and Gomorrah reverts for a while into the swamp it once was. Uh, me and my sister come to Accra. My sister said that I said your water. The air is sometimes grey, sometimes black with smoke. The lagoon is dead. The water from the two inlets has become a sluggish mass as the waste slowly decomposes. Drinking water only comes in little blue plastic bags carried in baskets on the heads of the girls who sell it, shining in the sun like the artificial blue of a swimming pool. How old are you? Me. I'm 13 years old. My sister is 14 years old. Almost all the water sellers are children. And nearly all are girls. Accra, Ghana. Morning. I came here alone. I didn't know anyone here. In the countryside, there isn't enough for everyone to do, and not enough for everyone to eat either. Our family only has a small field, and in the village, the only work is the work in the fields. And so your parents sent you here when you were 12 years old. They said... When you have saved enough money to be married, then you can come back to us. At least, that is the story the parents tell their children, so that saying goodbye does not feel like saying goodbye forever. Since then, you have been selling blue water bags in Agboploshi Market, just across the way from Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Say, I draw so with them. They are seven over them. And see, any and I a coffee, a word jarry, I be quack or jarry. Nay, any and I a co or be a be quack or twenty drena, a bed drena, a bed dia grows away because in a way say, say, a becassa will be not tama opeso bed and no other. For the nights, you pay rent for a place to sleep in one of the wooden sheds where you and 20 other girls find protection and a little peace between sunset and dawn. <laughs> In the evening, you spend what you earned during the day on a little fufu or jollof rice. You have fewer than a dozen possessions. Last week, for the first time in your life, you bought something you didn't absolutely need. A little necklace to wear around your neck. Mm. <laughs> okay. Words are tattooed on the pale insides of your lower arms in capital letters, as if you had written them there yourself with a pen. <laughs> but they are genuine tattoos. I had the tattoos done here. On my left arm, I have the names of my brother and sister. On my right arm, I have the names of my mother and father. And the address where they live. That was an excerpt from Children of Sodom and Gomorrah, winner of this year's Third Coast Director's Choice Award. Originally produced in German by Jens Jarisch, this version was adapted into English by Sharon Davis, with sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. You can hear the full story on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Great radio stories can change the way you think about the world by illuminating new heights, new depths, and new dimensions of experience. Some of these great stories even affect actual, tangible change. This year's Third Coast Radio Impact Award goes to Sally Herships, who spent over a year researching cigarette pricing on Army bases and the direct effect it had on American troops. Her story is called The 5% Rule. We pick up her story at Fort Hamilton Army Base in Brooklyn. And from now through April 7th, when you use your military star card... On any New York has the highest excise tax in the country. So outside the base, a pack of Marlboro Red sells for 11 or $12. That means the price inside should be around ten fifty. But when I checked... So how much are the Marlboro Reds? $8.80. That's a 20% discount, not the 5% required by the Department of Defense. When I first called Fort Hamilton in December, packs were selling for nearly 50% off. I called over 100 Army and Air Force bases all over the country and the civilian stores surrounding them, and I found unusually low discounts at bases in more than a dozen states. Keith Haddock was a major in the Air Force. Now he studies tobacco's impact on the military at the National Development and Research Institute. Haddock says those big discounts on tobacco lead to big costs for taxpayers. If you look at all the costs, they're pretty staggering. If you look at the direct medical costs, the indirect costs, and the costs on pain and suffering, it's substantial. Take the Veterans Administration. In 2008, the VA spent over $5 billion to treat chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a condition which 80% of the time comes from smoking. But the most puzzling aspect of the military's discount on tobacco may be what Haddock says is its effect on what's called readiness, 
a troop's ability to be ready to go at a moment's notice to fight and win wars, which is really the whole point. If you just look at the things that smoking decreases, it decreases a military member's fitness, decreases fine motor coordination, stamina, even decreases wound healing. So why would the military discount something that makes its troops less effective? A lot of the service members I talked to, like Timothy Starlacini, said when it's time for combat, tobacco helps reduce their stress. The brand of chewing tobacco Starlacini uses is called Kodiak. During this battle, do you have Kodiak with you? Yes. And what point does it go in your mouth? It, it never left. The whole thing about stress relief and smoking is one big illusion. Dr. Benjamin Gonzalez was in the Air Force and Army for 24 years. He was chief of the trauma center in Baghdad at the beginning of the Iraq War. Now he runs his own medical center in Maryland. Gonzalez says using tobacco only reduces the stress of addiction. In the same way that heroin alleviates stress in a heroin addict. Gonzalez says smoking doesn't reduce stress. Instead, it causes it. He says he doesn't want to take away tobacco from anyone on the front line who needs their fix, but it would be worthwhile to keep them from picking up a can of chew or a pack of cigarettes in the first place. Gonzalez says the relationship between pricing and tobacco use is well documented. If it's cheaper, they're going to smoke more. Period. The more cigarettes smoked, the higher the cost, the larger the bill to the taxpayer, and the greater the number of sick service members. Which brings us back to the issue of tobacco pricing on military bases. Lieutenant Colonel Schrader works for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service. How does the military set prices for tobacco? Okay, what we do is we have local market pricing coordinators. The pricing coordinator Schrader's talking about are the people whose job it is to help set prices for tobacco at the bases. We look at gas stations. We look at convenience stores. We look at major retailers. Which is what they're supposed to do. But it turns out they also look at stores on other military bases. That would mean, say, the Army taking a tobacco price from the Coast Guard, which is already discounted, and discounting on top of that. So I asked Schrader, is this going to change? But I never could get a straight answer. The Coast Guard exchange prices have been reviewed, and at those co-located areas in the past, we are now working cooperatively with all co-located exchange services to ensure that our pricing is using the same commercial competitors that they are. I asked six different times if the Army and Air Force would stop using other bases to set prices, but I got the same evasive response each time, which was basically the answer to a whole different question. I did manage to find out one thing. One of the reasons prices at the base in Brooklyn are so cheap is because they've been set based on prices at a so-called local store, which is five hours away at an Indian reservation in Oneida, New York. Some other bases set prices the same way, but Schrader says the Army and Air Force Exchange has recently decided this isn't a good system, and prices at the base in Brooklyn are on their way up. And that could mean better health for our military and a smaller tax bill for everyone. The 5% Rule was produced by Sally Herships with editor John Haas for American Public Media's Marketplace. As a result of Sally's dogged research and reporting, the Department of Defense raised cigarette prices on multiple military bases. The end result? Fewer smokers, lower health care costs, and longer lives. Talk about radio impact. 
You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. We're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition today, but you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up, a story of young love so strong, it literally has the power to coax someone back to life. Best of the Best is produced by the Third Coast Festival and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Welcome back to Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. And now we come to one of our top honors, the Silver Award winner of the 2011 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. This story immerses us in the lives of three people during an unexpected, heart-stopping moment in their lives. As it unfolds, you hear everything the tenor of their voices, the sound of their fear, the chill of their anxiety. It is a story destined for the radio. The first voice you'll hear is that of Jed Abumrad, host and producer of WNYC's Radio Lab. Here's Finding Emily. If you can tell us your name. Oh. Here's the guy. My name is Alan Lundgaard. Do you want to? Do you want me to say anything more than that? I don't know. Is this is this for like a credit? No. Well, <laughs> sometimes often on our show we have intru- let people introduce themselves. Oh, I don't know. I don't have a title. Okay. All right. So that's Alan. The girl, Emily. We'll meet her a bit later for reasons that will become clear. The story begins on a fall day in Brooklyn. And so the day in question, um, I guess, it was the morning of October eighth. They're both living in this one room loft in Brooklyn. And we woke up and, you know both twenty one. Went about our daily routine and prepared to go. He was in art school. She was taking some time off from art school to work for a local artist. So she would take the bike and I would take the train. What was the morning like? It was a beautiful day. It was, you know sun was low in the sky, so there were, you know, long shadows. I strapped on her helmet and adjusted it, took her bike out for her. We kissed each other goodbye and said I love you, and I watched her ride down the street in this early morning, and then, you know, on I went, down into the subway. Six hours later, he's working in the studio doing some sculpture, and he gets a call from a cop. And he just said, Emily Gassio, she had an accident. She's at Bellevue. This is the address. 
and I said, oh, I mean, do you have any more information? And he just told me that it was bad. I, I was like carrying a bunch of stuff and I just dropped everything and started running. Now, Alan and Emily had only been together nine months, but when it started, says Alan. It was just so immediate. The um, night they got together, they both just kind of knew. It was sort of like a weird prophetic kind of thing where I think it was the first day that the schools had a snow day. It was snowed out. It was kind of like this past blizzard, you know, sort of like city shuts down, magical kind of thing. He'd gone out with some friends just as the snow was coming down. And we were trapped at this party. And that's where he bumped into Emily. Pint-sized, these big, like, iridescent eyes and a very kind of... I have trouble describing her voice. It's almost as if, I know you guys are audio people, but it's like <laughs> stereo almost. Truth is, they'd known each other for a while, but that night, says Alan. Fireworks all of a sudden, and it felt right. So you had a, you had a feeling this wasn't just a thing, this was a thing. Right, right, or the thing. The thing. Right. The thing. The thing. The soul thing. Yeah. All right. Well, Emily, uh... There have always been boys around Emily. I mean, That's Susan Gossio, Emily's mom. She says at first, when Emily told her about Alan, she thought, okay, so that's another boy. Emily seemed to have that effect on boys, perhaps because she didn't really seem to need them. Here is someone who's been obsessed with art and has given up everybody in her life for art. At the age of six? She was creating her own comic books. In junior high school, she took drawing classes every night, and then in high school... She left us friends, boyfriends. To go to a high school of the arts in Florida. No one stands in the way of her art. It's all she sees. It's all she focuses on. But then she visited Emily in May, a few months before the accident, and she met Alan. I met Alan, and he was delightful. Um, But there was a different look that I'd never seen in Emily's eyes before when she looked at him, and I didn't like it. Tell us about the accident from your perspective. For my, for when I, yeah, I was at work. Uh, You're in New Orleans, Metairie, which is Metairie. a suburb yeah. of New Orleans, and I get a telephone call, and I looked and I saw it was Alan. Alan has never called me before. I answered the phone. I said hello, Alan, and he said, uh, "You have to come." Emily was hit by a truck, eighteen uh, wheeler semi truck, and I took a breath and I said, "Alan, is Emily dead?" And he said, "No." but you need to get here as soon as possible. Six hours later, her and her husband, Emily's dad, were at Bellevue Hospital here in Manhattan. They brought us into the her room in surgical ICU. We all went in, she was just lying in bed. And there were tubes. Tubes down her throat. Coming in and out. And her face was so swollen. Emily. Covered in blood. Weighed at, probably at the time of the accident about 100 pounds. And she then weighed 128. She had swollen 28 pounds. She had multiple fractures in her leg and her pelvis and the left side of her face. They had opened her abdomen and they had taken her intestines out and put them on top of her body so that she could breathe. And she was just lying completely still, you know. That first 48 hours, nothing moved, not nothing. We took up shifts, you know, her mother would be there in the day and her father in the evening, and then I would be there with her at night. Her eyes weren't even flickering. And as she sat there watching Emily not move, she says she kept thinking, why? I've got these four kids. 
And everything bad seems to happen to Emily. Starting at six months. Wow. Ear infections, then sinus infections, then asthma. By kindergarten, Emily was losing her hearing for reasons no one could quite figure out. She had to get hearing aids. On both sides. But somehow, her mom says, all this just made Emily more fierce. If anyone can conquer this, it's Emily. I think on the second day, they started to take her off her medication, expecting to see some sort of reaction from her. And... Nothing. Nothing. There was a nurse, and uh, the nurse said that Emily was gone and asked me about organ donations. And I said yes. And so um, I worked up enough courage to go into what they call the track room, which is where the residents usually are. And there was one woman resident sitting at a computer, and I went and I said, when are you going to let Emily go? And she said, we will have a a family meeting tomorrow morning, and we'll talk then. And so I said, okay, and I I left, and I went back, and and I'm sitting with Emily side of her bed, and I'm telling her, Emily and I read the book, The Bridge of San Luis Rey, when she was a sophomore. And I remember the ending of the book. There's a land of the living, there's a land of the dead, and the bridge is love and that love is the only thing that survives. And it's kind of the way it goes. And so I was sitting there with Emily and I was telling this to, I was saying this and talking in her ear and saying this and talking to her and telling her that I would love her eternally through all time, that our love would never end. And Emily raised her left hand. It was, it was chaos. I was yelling for the nurse. I saw it. I saw her move. That was really one of the really abrupt moments. Now, they knew. Emily was not dead. Emily was alive. But how alive? Over the next few days, says Alan. She slowly started moving more, not really in response to anything. She'd writhe in bed, scratch her leg where there was a wound. We would hold her hand down, and she'd slap. She'd slap our hands away. But when they tell this to the doctors, the doctors would say, that's not indicative of any kind of mental functioning. Could just be a reflex, really. So the medical team began trying to determine just how damaged was she. The ophthalmologist teams were coming in, and they were trying to get Emily's eyes to, eye pupils to respond, and they weren't responsive. And so I knew what that meant. What did that mean? It meant she she could be blind. So Emily couldn't see, couldn't hear. Because remember, she wore hearing aids. And why didn't she just put those in? We tried. I mean, we tried many times to put it in, but she just wouldn't allow it. What would she do exactly when you did it? Flail her head, shake around. Kick, and she would hit. Had a lot of bruises on my body where she'd kicked me and pinched me. So we we stopped. Every once in a while, we would go back to it. But there was the question... You know, um, maybe she couldn't hear anymore. So what do you, what do, you do to a person who's can't, you don't know what's going on inside her and you can't get to her? Uh, you send her to a nursing home and, you know, that's where she would have remained. And after several weeks in the ICU, Emily... She was stable. And that meant they had to make a decision. Once you become stable, then you have to move off surgical ICU and out of the hospital to either a rehabilitation or to a nursing home. So that became the new question. Where would she go? Could she be repaired, so to speak, in which case she'd go to rehab? Or is this it for her? In which case, she'd go to a nursing home. 
Now, making that call medically is um, sometimes tricky. That's Dr. Michal Eisenberg. She's a physician at NYU, and it's her job to make that call. And she says one of the key criteria for getting someone into rehab... To do rehab on somebody, you need to have them reacting to you. A person needs to be able to participate in a meaningful way for three hours of therapy a day. They have to be able to follow commands because that's how you rehabilitate someone. If the person can't hear, if the person can't see, then there's no way to communicate with her. And so they made the assessment that she could not go to rehab. And that Emily should go to a nursing home. So sent my husband back to New Orleans to look for a nursing home. That they could bring her back to. They just kept it all secret from me that they were going to take her away from me. I mean, how do you tell someone who, who loves your daughter that much that we're taking her away? But it was not just one life that we had in our hands. It was two lives. We felt that that would be the best thing for him. And Alan could hate us. Maybe as a way for him to bridge and let go for that grief. But then, as the doctors were prepping Emily to move her to a nursing home, they had to remove her tracheotomy, which was helping her breathe. And she all of a sudden started talking. Really? She, she spoke. Yes. What was she saying? She would curse. Don't touch me, you blank to blank, you know. She would say stop. This was in response to someone to touch, touching her? Touching her. And if she wasn't cursing, says Alan? She would call everybody Miss Dashwood. Certain people that were touching her were Miss Dashwood. What's, Is what's it, um... From Sense and Sensibility. But Healing. quoting Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, yeah, we had watched the movie, like, a couple months previous to this. So somehow she was locked in the movie. And it was just the assumption of the doctors that she was just sort of mentally damaged. But if she's calling people Miss Dashwood, doesn't that at least mean something? No. It wasn't enough to say that Emily could follow a command like, sit up, raise your right hand. So the plan was still the nursing home. Right. I mean, no, every possibility had not been exhausted. I can see him. He was sitting across the room, and his jaws were just clenched. I just was not going to give up. And he was saying, you have to give her a chance. She, you have to give her the chance. Do you have a plan? No, I had no plan whatsoever. No. I was lost. This experience was just completely traumatic to me emotionally, but at the same time, I was going to help her in whatever way I could. Uh... The only trajectory I had was to help her. And one night, just a few days before Emily was going to be discharged to a nursing home, away from him. I was there alone with her, and it was 3 a.m. or something. And she was calm. Like, she wasn't trying to fight me away or anything. I had helped her fix a thing that was wrong with her uh, mouth wiring. It was like huh. a wire that was poking her, and I fixed it for her. And he says at that moment, something occurred to him. I, it really just was like in the recesses of my mind. He thought of the story of Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan. He'd read about it a few days earlier online, and he thought, hmm, what if I tried what Annie Sullivan did with Helen Keller on Emily? I, I took her left hand with my left hand, and I leaned over, and using her wrist as the baseline for the words... And his finger as the pen. I just wrote, I waited a second, L waited a second, O waited a second, V, E waited a second, you. Then, according to Alan, she said to him, She said, oh, you love me? Thank you. She literally replied yeah, immediately she replied to it? immediately. She has, does she know who you, who no, you are? No, she has no idea who I am. 
but now he had a way to get to her so he could figure out how much of her was actually there and maybe even prove it to the doctors. You know, I had to have something that was conclusive to present to them. The following evening, I took out my cell phone and it has a record function on it and I started recording question after question to determine her cognitive ability. What is your name? What? W-H-A-T. What? Is. I-S. Is. You fingerspelled every letter? Yeah. called me at 4 o'clock in the morning, said, you have to come now. I have proof. I'm now going to ask her what year it is. What? What? Now I'm going to write year. Year. Is. Is. Got there about 4.45 in the morning. Alan is over there by the bed, continuing to fingerspell and talk to her. And she, she calls him Alan. She knows that this person who is fingerspelling on her hand is named Alan. But Alan can't get her to understand who he really is, that it's her Alan. I'm just going to write my name again, Alan. <laughs> like, she just couldn't make that mental jump to connect her past life with her present. Asian. Am I Asian? And tell her no. Next thing I hear her say is, pull me out of the wall. She kept saying, pull me out. Please pull me out of here. It's dark in here. Pull me out. Help me. I know you can do it. Pull me out of the wall. I kept saying, I can't. I would write on her hand, I can't. Alan starts to sob, and I'm crying too. What are you thinking at this point? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And I said, Alan, ask her about her hearing aids. And so he fingerspells hearing, hearing aid. Aid. And she said, okay. She agreed to put the hearing aid in for the first time. So we put it in and switched it on. He said, Emily. Emily, can you hear me? It's me, Alan. And immediately. Everything came back to me. I was there. I remembered everything. 
The door opened and Emily stepped out. She was back. Yeah, it's just like hearing his voice. I knew it was him and I, and then she said my mom was there. And I heard her say what I had been waiting for her to say all those weeks. I screamed, mommy, mommy. She said, mama. You know, I couldn't believe they were there the whole time. We asked Emily, before she came back, where was she? I didn't know where I was, if I could see at all. I mean, all I knew is that I was sleeping and I was always dreaming. She says people would come to her in her dreams and say, Don't, don't touch that. Stop scratching your wounds. My dreams would blend in with reality. She says she knew somehow that there were people around her, but she couldn't get to them. And that she also knew she was in a dream. Why am I still sleeping? That she couldn't somehow wake up from. I felt helpless. I felt really helpless. Were you waiting for someone like that? I mean, were you, because... I was, was it, waiting for some communication, you know? And I was relieved. Alan, he's a miracle to me. Emily's now at the Rusk Institute, which is one of New York City's leading rehab centers. And on the day we visited her, she just had a breakthrough. Today was the first day I could stand on both legs and walk, <laughs> actually walk. I walked 100 feet today. After rehab, she'll be moving into an apartment in lower Manhattan with Alan. She's blind, and the chances of her seeing again are slim, but Alan plans to spend his time helping her cope and helping her find a new way to make art. Emily, can you, can you introduce yourself? Do you want me to say my name is Emily? Gossier? Yeah, just, just so we have it all on tape. They asked I, me if I would have a title, and I couldn't think of one, but I thought of one. A, a title? Yeah, I'm, I'll do mine. My name is Alan Lungard. I'm the boyfriend. <laughs> My name is Emily Gossio. I'm the girlfriend. <laughs> You're the star of the show. Oh, is that what I should say? <laughs> Finding Emily was produced by Jad Abumrad, Robert Krulwich, and Soren Wheeler for WNYC's Radio Lab. The story won this year's Third Coast Best Documentary Silver Award. Alan, Emily, and Jed joined us for this year's award ceremony. Emily's had a tough year of surgeries and rehab, but she's doing great. Her biggest challenge at the moment is her loss of sight. They came into our studio to give us an update and reflect on their experience. Here's Emily. I learned Braille, and I'm learning how to cook for myself again, and I'm also getting ready for my guide dog evaluation. Oh, cool. Yeah, and in a couple of months, I'm going to be going to this like a residency school. Mm-hmm. Um, where they basically train you how to live as a blind person independently. Mm-hmm. And it's like a six to nine month program where you uh, live away from home in an apartment by yourself and you go to a school that teaches you like the basic skills you need 
um, to live independently. But the ultimate goal is for me to return to school next fall, 2012, and to graduate. One of the things that I think is just so powerful about the story is the sheer immovable force that you two are as a couple and Alan's incredible persistence. So I'm just wondering, does that put a lot of pressure on your relationship? Um, no. <laughs> no. Not at all. No. I you really... Don't... Yeah, I don't... I don't think there's any pressure whatsoever. But in terms of perseverance and resilience, definitely I can see how people would attribute that to me based on the story initially. But in the past eight months or so, Emily has really been the resilient part of this equation. She's been the one who just, you know, unrelentingly gets up every day, doesn't complain once. To me, that is what gives me strength. I think people need to hear that as well because <laughs> she, she's, she's the rock. What was it like working with the Radiolab guys? I feel like Radiolab was the perfect medium or radio in itself was the perfect medium for this story to be told because even in other iterations of the story like an article that was written in the newspaper or something it really doesn't get to the kinds of details and specificity that Jad and Robert did and it doesn't really bring out the emotions and the nuanced emotions that they were able to create or not create but represent rather mm -hmm. because it is it's very spot on they did excellent work. Definitely. That was Emily Gassio and Alan Lundgaard. Here's Jad Abumrad, producer of Finding Emily. I was really spooked by the story, you know? I was really kind of haunted by certain aspects of the story itself, but by, by Alan and by this thing that between them that seemed... It seemed so fairy tale at the beginning, and then it somehow, even through this catastrophe, even more fairy tale, and, and, and enforce this idea that, like, God, these two people love each other in a way that I almost can't imagine. And then the other thing that really spooked me is um, when we talked to Emily and she described the place where she was, that sort of, like, liminal space, and that sense of, like, being stuck there. God, it just... And the, the idea that someone would come and get you from that place. I don't know. God, it's like, it, it makes me a little bit emotional just thinking about it. Usually, you know, usually you do a story and then there's just another broken story staring at you and you have to fix it and you forget about the last one, move on to the next one. I couldn't shake this one. Um, like we did this story, we put it out immediately and it got more feedback instantly than anything we've ever done by a factor of 10, you know. I mean, th it was a roar. People just came out and they were, they were so moved by it. And... Um, it was kind of confusing to me a little bit. I mean, I was happy to have made a good story that people like, but I mean, like they couldn't pay their hospital bills. They had these huge hospital bills and it was like, we went 10 rounds with the station about, you know, could we, can we put out a call to people to donate money? But that felt like advocacy. We went back and forth and back and forth, but it was, a, it was complicated. I don't know. This one was a little bit like the aftermath of it for us was a little bit like, oh God, we just did this thing. And I don't know if we help them the way that they've helped us, you know? That was Jad Abumrad, recipient of this year's Third Coast Silver Award for Finding Emily.
To hear the full-length interviews with Emily, Allen, and Jed, and to find out about the Emily Gassio Fund, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Sound inhabits you. It goes right inside. Very good. Emily, very good. Great radio is physical. It starts, of course, in your ears. But the best radio, like the stories you've heard this hour, slowly but surely make their way into your bones. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2011 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Thanks for joining us. The program was produced by Katie Mingle, with assistance from Jennifer Brandell, and distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Julie Shapiro. Special thanks to Jay Allison for his voice of radio wisdom. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. The festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. For more stories galore, pictures from the awards ceremony, and information about our year-round audio festivities, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.